HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. I think one of the things that for me is personally kind of rewarding and that is equally fascinating is the degree to which every year, pretty much every month, we're finding something new about the culinary history of African-Americans. What happens then and what will happen then is people will begin to understand how how broad the African-American contribution is, how broad, how deep, how wide, how extraordinarily ranged. It goes from things like, well, Norbert Rieu, who was a free Creole of color in Louisiana, who transformed the production of sugar. People like Lena Richard, who was the first black woman to host a cooking television show more than a decade before Julia Child and and, um, people who really brought food and American food and African-American food onto a a larger world stage. The the list goes on and on and on. It It is a pretty astounding list and anyone who says that they knew all of them is just not telling the truth because there's no way anyone could. You just heard the legendary historian Dr. Jessica B. Harris catalog some of the remarkable achievements of this nation's League of Unheralded Black Chefs. In honor of Black History Month, we're spotlighting stories centered around Black and African-American history, culture, and food— From the origins and influences of some of the United States' most iconic food to the people who are making it. Across cities, regions, and continents, we'll explore the legacy of shared agricultural knowledge, rich foodways, and social justice movements. As Dr. Jessica B. Harris said, this is an ongoing and unending project that reaches far beyond a single month. I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, and this is Meet and Three on HRN. Meat and three. Meat and three. Meat and three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and three. Rice, a staple grain known and grown across the globe. For many cultures, rice is the foundation of a meal. 
But how did this mighty grain allow enslaved black people's culture to endure from the coasts of West Africa to the rice plantations of South Carolina? So the Gullah Geechee are the descendants of, of blacks who were enslaved um, in the low country of South Carolina, Georgia, North Carolina, and Florida. And I was actually interested in the West African connections of Gullah Geechee. And rice was this prism, right, where historians and anthropologists were talking about uh, cultural retention and cultural survivals among the Gullah. And so I saw rice as this potential link between the two. That was Dr. Etta Fields Black an associate professor at Carnegie Mellon University's Department of History. She recently appeared on an episode of Fields, HRN's show all about urban agriculture. In order to better understand some of the connections between the Gullah Geechee people and West Africa, we have to look back to their enslaved ancestors in the antebellum South. There are probably more than 50 microenvironments in which rice can be grown, and that's from rocky hillsides to mangrove swamps. A small segment of them are grown in brackish water. Now, of course, rice is grown all over the world, right? Asia, Africa, the US, South America. But only in two places is rice grown in brackish water. And that's in West Africa and then in the South Carolina and Georgia Low Country. The only people who knew how to desalinate certain kinds of rice fields to a level where rice and other grasses would grow were Africans who were originating in a certain part of West Africa in which, you know, salt and salt processing and salt harvesting was a part of their technology going back thousands of years. The rice paddies in South Carolina and Georgia Lowcountry were filled with brackish water, waters that are less saline than freshwater, but more saline than marine salt water. Enslaved black people were working and engineering the fields to be suitable to grow a bountiful harvest. They were also perfecting the processing technologies with knowledge from West Africa. The other knowledge system, which... South Carolina planters did not have was the processing of rice, right? How do you separate the kernel from the grain and how do you do it in a way that doesn't break the grain and how can you do it in a way, particularly for a commercial market that polishes the grain and makes it white and makes it therefore desirable in terms of aesthetics, but also desirable in terms of taste and consistency to a European market. So it's that processing technology, the pounding, the fanning, etc. All of that technology is, is West African. Enslaved Black people worked in rice paddies, building the plantation owners' wealth throughout the summer and autumn months. However, the white owners and overseers would often live in cities during these months to escape the heat humidity, and abundance of mosquito-borne illnesses in the fields. So especially, particularly on rice plantations, you had um, long periods in the year from early May until mid to late November when white 
plantation owners and overseers did not live on the plantations. And so, so the argument goes that because of this lack of white interference, people in the low country were able to practice and then to maintain various linguistic and cultural forms over a period of time. Rice preserved agricultural and food processing practices between West Africa and South Carolina and Georgia Low Country. It also helped maintain fundamental aspects of enslaved Black people's culture. It is because of this cultural knowledge and the labor of enslaved Black people in the antebellum South that America has achieved its agricultural and economic power today. Knowledge like language and agricultural techniques were not the only aspects of culture from West Africa influencing America today. Michael Edwin takes a look at the difference between two of America's most iconic cuisines inspired by West African cooking. If I ask you to imagine soul food, what comes to mind? What if I ask you to picture Southern food? Are they the same? Different? People often use these terms interchangeably. But when you consider their cultural and historical context, there's an important distinction between the two. To learn more, I spoke with Adrian Miller, a culinary historian known as a soul food scholar. There's a lot of common overlaps with soul food and Southern food. Both of these traditions are a blending of West Africa, Western Europe, and the Americas in terms of ingredients, traditions, and techniques. So before the 1960s, No matter who you were and where you were in the South, anything that was made was called Southern cooking. It was all Southern cooking. It was really in the 1940s, 50s, and then really in the 60s that this starts to get called by different names. And one of the biggest uh, surprises of my research is I find that it's more about class and place than race. As the civil rights movement gained momentum, Soul food started to emerge in the Black consciousness. Soul and Southern food did develop side by side. However, Adrian sees their relationship this way. All soul food is Southern food, but not all Southern food is soul food. I think of soul food as something very distinctive. I don't think it's a catch-all phrase for all African-American cooking, the way that Southern food is a catch-all phrase for all food of the region. And I think Creole food is something different. So the Creole food of New Orleans, Mobile, Alabama, I I just think those are something different. So when I'm asked what's the difference between soul food and Southern food, I say that soul food tastes better. Uh, Soul food tends to be more highly seasoned. And then the the last thing I think is um, a big difference is the lines between savory and sweet are often blurred in soul food, um, more so than Southern On a typical plate of soul food, I think the entrees would be fried chicken, fried or smothered chicken, some kind of fried fish, chitlins, chitterlings, pork intestines, pig intestines, collards, kale, mustard, turnips, or cabbage for greens, black-eyed peas, uh, candied sweet potatoes, candy jams, macaroni and cheese, some type of cornbread, um, hot sauce, uh, some kind of red drink. And then for dessert, I think pound cake, peach cobbler, banana pudding, sweet potato pie. For Southern, I think you're only changing a couple of things. I I think you take out the chitlins. Um, I think you take out the red drink. 
And then other than that, almost everything else can be, would be the same in terms of what is served. Soul food and Southern food have been shaped by African-Americans, Native Americans, and white Americans as well. But narratives about these cuisines don't do this multicultural history justice. While the collision of these cultures created the foodways that we think of today, multiple stereotypes developed as well. There's a lot of painful stereotypes that are associated with soul food and Southern food that are aimed at Black people. And what's really goofy about these racial stereotypes with foods like watermelon and fried chicken is that white people ate the same thing. But this shows you the power dynamic. And, and you see these racial stereotypes. What's interesting, though, is that these stereotypes live because to some extent we keep giving them power. And my hope is that we can reclaim uh, watermelon, fried chicken, and all these other things because they're delicious. And we can uh, let people know about the stereotypes. These stereotypes strain the relationship between people of different races and were used to rationalize writing off soul food and Southern cuisine. The first is that it's unhealthy, that these things uh, will kill you if you eat them on a regular basis. And, and the other one is that uh, soul food is not worthy of celebration because it's, it's slave food. This is not the sum total of soul food. Uh, if you look at the building blocks of soul food, there's greens, right? Dark leafy greens, the sweet potatoes, hibiscus, okra, lots of vegetables. And these are the things that nutritionists are telling us to eat. From stereotypes to this cuisine's fraught history, a stigma associated with soul and Southern food affects African-Americans' relationship with this cuisine. Adrian calls for unity and the willingness to accept our own culture. I think soul food has a complicated relationship with our own community because of this idea that it's slave food or that it uh, needs a warning label. So we don't see, you just don't see as many people championing, uh, black people championing um, soul food as much as you see in other parts of the cult, other aspects of the culture. So I think that's why soul food is relatively, compared to other aspects of black culture, unknown to others. So I think it's really a, a function of we need more African Americans to celebrate our own food. And even with its complicated history, say, well, this is something worthy of celebration. We'll be right back with more Meet and 3 after a short break. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. Welcome back to Meet and Three. In his book, Savage Barbecue, historian Andrew Warnes writes about 
an acronym almost as famous as USA itself, BBQ. Across the country, you'll find varying styles of barbecue, barbecue competitions, barbecue restaurants, best of barbecue lists, cookouts, and TV shows dedicated to the cuisine. And although barbecue as we know it today wouldn't exist without black pitmasters, the industry doesn't yet reflect that history. Ellie Katz speaks with pitmaster and barbecue scholar Dr. Howard Conyers about efforts to amplify the black and brown voices of barbecue's past and future. I am Dr. Howard Conyers. I'm an engineer, pitmaster, all things barbecue, I guess, from cooking it to the research. And so uh, I'm also a mentor with Kingsford Preserve the Pit Program. And uh, I do a lot of work in the history and study of the culture of black barbecue. I've been working a long time, probably the past eight years, really trying to understand the African-American contribution to American barbecue, because in a lot of media sources and a lot of outlets, it was not documented very well or accurately, almost as if they want to intentionally write the African hand out of the pit, their black hand out of the pit. So over the years, I do a lot of things to amplify black and brown voices in the barbecue industry. One of those things is his involvement with Kingsford Grilling's Preserve the Pit program. Now in its second year, Preserve the Pit will select six aspiring barbecue professionals as fellows to receive immersive training and one-on-one mentorship throughout 2022. It'll also award 10 applicants with grants to kickstart their businesses. Preserve the Pit aims to honor the history of barbecue in the Black community while helping barbecuers capitalize on their craft. I just really hope that it really makes a a dent and improve the number of successful and sustainable Black barbecue businesses. In the past probably five years or so, some of the older legacy barbecue restaurants, there was one generation, one or two generations, and they're ending as if they didn't have any succession planning. And I think there's a generational wealth opportunity left behind on the table when those businesses end. So I hope the Preserve the Pit program really helped Black entrepreneurs in the barbecue space, not just not just barbecue, just become sustainable businesses for long, the long haul, something they could pass down to the family and to their community. With more thriving Black-owned barbecue businesses, Dr. Conyers hopes the industry will start to better reflect the pitmasters who made barbecue what it is today. For the most part, when you look at a barbecue festival or a food event that feature in barbecue, you see a whole bunch of white chefs or white pitmasters, and you only see like one or two black pitmasters. The reason some of the work I do is because I realize the media doesn't like shout out African-Americans and barbecue. And the ultimate goal when it comes to barbecue? I would love to see the day when I don't have to say black barbecue. I would love to be able to see the day when I see barbecue and I see the representation in barbecue is diverse. Black people, women, Asian, Latinos, and white people all together, not just one in a number. And until I see that moment in time, I will use black barbecue, but I really wish it would become a moment in time that I don't have to use it because the people in a majority realize that diversity and inclusion is important and they do it on their own without me having to say it. Are you an aspiring restaurateur, food truck chef, influencer, blogger, or food entrepreneur with a deep connection to barbecue? Applications for Preserve the Pit close March 1st, 2022. Visit preservethepit.com for more info or find the link in our show notes. Whether a company takes initiative to mentor Black entrepreneurs or individuals choose to frequent Black-owned stores, 
It seems a common prescription for closing the racial wealth gap is to invest capital in Black-owned businesses. This became even more critical during the pandemic when Black-owned businesses closed at twice the rate of their white counterparts. Isaac Furman examines what supporting Black-owned means to the owner of one small business. In my neighborhood in Brooklyn, Black Lives Matter is a notion that feels pretty commonplace. So common, in fact, that for many people, it's easy to forget how invisible the movement felt just a couple of years ago. You know, and I think, as you mentioned, like BLM, even in Brooklyn, you would not even see like someone with a sign on their window. Right. And now it becomes it's like it's so prevalent. That's Chris Maestro. He opened his first beer wax location in late 2017. And I thought it would be just cool to have a place that I go into work every day that I can be surrounded by both vinyl records and craft beer. As it turned out, other people also thought this sounded cool. And by the summer of 2020, beer wax became something of a rarity. And not just because it's the only place around where you can enjoy a Belgian double bock and classic Nas on an analog sound system either. It became a Black-owned business that survived the brunt of the pandemic in New York City. Per a study done by the New York Federal Reserve Bank, the number of active Black-owned businesses in New York State in February of 2020 was just under 100,000. By June, that number was down to under 30,000. So when 70,000 businesses disappear in the span of a few months, people take notice. And when you combine that with widespread protests in the wake of George Floyd's murder in May, you see an increased spotlight on supporting Black-owned. From May 25th to July 10th of 2020, Yelp says they had over 2.5 million searches for Black-owned businesses. That's compared to 35,000 over the same period in 2019. I appreciated the, the spotlight. But then part of me is like, okay, that's great, but it's so such a, just scratching the surface on, on the type of change that needs to happen. Before Beer Wax, Chris worked as a history teacher in New York City public schools. He's able to offer a perspective beyond that of just a small business owner. There is that guilt of like, you know, almost like we're capitalizing off of, uh, you know, police killings and of uh, of black folks dying. And hey, now our business is, uh, you know, is being celebrated. It just it's a strange kind of dichotomy um, that in a certain sense, like makes me uncomfortable, um, even as someone that is it's weird. It's weird to say because I'm a business owner. Uh, but I'm also an anti-capitalist. So, <laughs> um, you know, so it just, it's very weird, the idea of like, okay, like, you know, because of Black Lives Matter now, there's a spotlight so we can make more money. There is this rather complicated marriage between social justice and economic development. The BLM protests last May sprung up over outrage about the police continuing to kill unarmed black and brown people. And all that other stuff that happened scrubbing blackface episodes from TV, deplatforming racist losers, and yes, patronizing black businesses, is important too. But is this what it took for America to notice? And are individual consumers really strong enough to keep these minority businesses afloat in the face of centuries-old racist practices and an ongoing pandemic? It's just unfortunate that a lot of the systems in place in our government institutions are, you know, really preventative of, of businesses being allowed to thrive. There is more that the government can do to help out here. Racial discrimination in loan lending continues to present a massive hurdle, for example. In 2018, 38% of Black business owners who applied for a loan received no assistance. 
For white applicants, it was 20%. Flattening out that process is a clear win for racial justice. Although for an average American sitting on their couch looking for a way to help out, reshaping the national lending system may seem out of reach. The good news here, though, is that Beerwax has managed to beat the odds and get through these past couple of years with the help of the community. Chris even managed to open a second, larger location in Queens earlier this year. The overarching systemic failures that dapple American history will take a long time to overcome. But in the meantime, it's nice to know that you can still make a small difference by choosing where to drink your beer. Learn more about the guests and topics we touched on this week by checking out our show notes, including a playlist of episodes from across HRN's network spotlighting Black history. Special thanks this week to Autumn Jemison, Isaac Furman, Sam Burroughs, Michael Edwin, Ellie Katz, and Angela Cho. Meet and 3 is produced by Matt Patterson, Dylan Hoyer, and me, Katie Mosman-Wadler. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and 3 is powered by Simplecast. Meet and 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say hey, write us at ideas at meetin3.nyc. That's all spelled out. 